Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, September 16th, 2022. It was on this day in 1862 that Union and Confederate forces under the commands of George McClellan, commanding the Union, and Robert E. Lee, commanding the Confederates, gathered on either side of Antietam Creek near Sharpsburg, Maryland, in preparation for what would become the Battle of Antietam that takes place the next day, September 17, 1862. It was a time of great division, obviously, for our country, between North and South, between slave and free, between various economic uh, uh, philosophies and, and, and ways of life, and between the states of the United States. But it was a division that our nation overcame. We're living at a time of great division right now, and many people wonder if this is the end of our country, and I'm sure back at the time of the Civil War, many people believed that was the end of the country as well then, and that was well over 150 years ago. The country came out of it better. There were obviously winners and losers, and there will be in this time of division, but that's part of a process when we're dealing in a, in a nation in which part of it is a democratic process. There's going to be a winning side and a losing side, but hopefully a good compromise can be achieved, and we will see our country getting through this for the better. We also, as many observe, see our Catholic Church divided. And I'm not going to carry on and on and on about how horribly divided the Church is, because I don't know about you, but I've heard my share of Catholics who believe that this is the end of the Church. The Church has gone so far, gone, so far. there's no way it can come back. Many of them blame the Holy Father, Pope Francis. Most people who blame him are people of a much more conservative ideology of Catholicism, and then, of course, those who are liberal think it's not going far enough. And I know as a priest, sometimes I get caught in the middle of it because people want me to comment on it. And let's face it, when people comment that Pope Francis is an illegitimate pope, I just simply say, look, I don't have the authority to make that determination, and somehow I don't think you do either. But a good thing to remember on this day, September 16th, is the church observes the feast day of two saints, Saints Cyprian and Saint Cornelius. These were two bishops of the early church, and one of them was a pope. Saint Cornelius was a pope. Cyprian was a bishop, and both of them were martyrs for the faith. Now, just consider this. How do you think would be the reaction around the world in general, and the Catholic Church in particular, especially those who think the Church is in crisis right now? How do you think they would react? What would the reaction be if a foreign power were to take Pope Francis from the Vatican and put him in prison? What would become of the papacy? The thing to remember is, nothing would become of the papacy. It would simply be in prison. The papacy would still be there, like it has always been. And there were times, especially in the early, 
early decades and centuries of the church in which the papacy found itself in prison. Now, granted, yeah, the leadership and the administration was not as sophisticated as it is now, not as complicated and involved as it is now. But St. Peter was as much of a pope, the first pope, as Pope Francis is now. St. Peter didn't have St. Peter's Basilica and the palace and armed bodyguards, but he was the first pope, and Cornelius was one of his successors. Cornelius was, in fact, the 21st pope. We're now in the 250 or 60-something, but Cornelius was the 21st pope. And he was elected during a period of persecution. And during his papacy, he was sent into exile, imprisoned, and died a martyr's death. Where is the papacy under Cornelius? The papacy was in prison. The papacy was in exile, and the papacy was martyred. That is where the papacy was. That is where the papacy could be again. The Episcopacy of Cyprian was the same thing. And how would people today respond if the papacy were treated that way? If Vatican City were overrun and taken over by a foreign power, be it Italy, which is right there, or another foreign power, and the papacy were sent into exile, and perhaps even in prison, and perhaps even publicly executed. Some people would think that's the end of the church. What would really happen is, the cardinals would get together where they could, and choose a successor. The church would go on, as it always has, even in its most dire crises throughout history. What we see in the church today, to a certain extent, at least in my immediate area, and we perhaps see it to some degree where any, anyone is, is the division that we see in the church among ideologies. There's the traditionalists, there's the liberals, there's the more progressive. And we do see a division in the church. I spoke in a previous uh, podcast about the various rites of the Catholic Church, Eastern Catholic rites in the Western Catholic Church, and even commenting on the Orthodox Church, but just in the Catholic Church alone, the multiple ways, the multiplicity of rites in which we celebrate one Eucharist. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but in my experience, and hopefully it's not universal, but it certainly has been with me, in my experience of, of the roughly 28 different ways to celebrate Mass that have developed over the history of the Catholic Church and still exist today, only one of them seems to have people, laity, priests, who insist that their way is the only way to do it, and everyone else is doing it either invalidly or not as well as they are doing it. And sometimes they don't even intend to, perhaps even don't even know that they're coming off on that that particular disposition. I have good friends who recently told me and I don't fault them, but they recently told me, they said they would never recommend the Latin Mass to new Catholics or recently returned Catholics. They're not ready for it. And again, expressing an uppityness with regard to their way of celebrating Mass as opposed to everyone else. By the same token, I've run into my share of people on the more proverbially literal, liberal side of things. I remember one time I was doing a, a Mass in one of the local parks on the day of a parish picnic. And prior to beginning Mass, I gathered with the staff and the people who had organized the Mass and the picnic, including the DRE, who was right out of central casting in terms of coming out of the 60s here in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. 
But I simply told them, I said, before Mass, so before we begin the hymn, before Mass, give me a chance to make an announcement that during communion, if there is anyone with dirty hands, because everyone was outside and especially children were playing, if anyone has dirty hands, I'm going to ask them to receive communion on the tongue, whereby the DRE went ballistic. Why? Why do you have to force them to, and again, her thing was, don't ever do anything that would be considered conservative. So it's on both sides. She didn't want to receive communion on the tongue, didn't want to have anyone else, didn't even want to bring it up. And others, they have their more traditional way of doing things, and they won't do it any other way, and both sides seem to look rather askance at the very least, if not condescendingly at the worst, if not in complete contempt in the worst, with the other ways of doing things. And we see in that a certain division in the church itself. And some getting melodramatic will say, oh, it's the end of the church. The church is coming to an end. It's never been this bad in the church. And frankly, it has been worse in the church and worse for the church. And it's something we remember on this day of the feast of saints Cornelius and Cyprian. Because these two saints engaged in a tradition that is older than any other tradition in the church, except maybe the sacraments. People love to classify their Catholicism. I call them, yes, but Catholics. Yes, I'm Catholic, but I'm a traditional Catholic, to which I often like to ask, is there any other kind? And unfortunately, there are those who say, yes, there is. And when they have to say, yes, there is, then I wonder about their own traditional Catholicism. I'm Catholic, but I'm a more liberal Catholic. I'm Catholic, but I don't agree with everything the church teaches. I like to turn the table on that person or people like them and, and say, I don't think you know everything the church teaches to say I don't agree with everything the church teaches. It's a different focus of mental sh uh, uh, shift, but it throws them off for at least a second. But whether one considers Vatican II a whitewash in which nothing that existed before it is to exist now, or saw it as a heretical break from the church, in which nothing afterwards must be adhered to if we are to be true Catholics. And by the way, folks, neither position is correct. We love to tout ourselves sometimes as traditional Catholics, but we forget that, first of all, the traditions we like to adhere to when we refer to ourselves as traditional Catholics are really barely 500 years old. Council of Trent was when the traditional Latin Mass, as we know it, really became more universally practiced. And one of the provisions of the Council of Trent was that any other liturgical rite that was 200 years or older would be allowed to continue and flourish, which is why we still have that multiplicity of rites in the East and even a handful of them in the West, such as the Ambrosian Rite, which is still practiced in Milan, Italy, and the Dominican Rite, which is still practiced by the Dominican Order. But any rite that existed 200 years prior would be able to continue and flourish. But it was at that time that the Latin Mass became more universally practiced, but it was only just under 500 years ago. Once we get to the 2040s, we'll be about 500 years since the traditional Latin Mass became more universally practiced. So it's not as traditional as we might think. Only one quarter of church history... What did the church do for its other three quarters? Well, there were other traditions of the church that were observed by the people. 
And there is one tradition that is older than any other tradition in the church, with the exception of the sacraments. With the exception of the Eucharist, baptism, and the other sacraments, healing, forgiveness of sins, there is one tradition that is older than any other tradition in the Catholic Church. So old is it that even Jesus participated in it. Every apostle engaged in this practice that is more traditional than anything else. What is that tradition? That tradition is martyrdom for the faith. Suffering and dying for the sake of the faith. That is the oldest Catholic tradition. And there are even popes like Saints Cornelius, St. Peter, and the earlier popes of the church participated in that tradition. When one calls themselves a traditional Catholic, they should ask themselves, before they make that claim, are they willing to die for the faith as Jesus did, as the apostles did? That is one of the true apostolic traditions of the church. Older than Latin Mass, older than kneeling to receive communion on the tongue, and for that matter, receiving communion on the hand, older than the traditional Latin Mass, older than all other rites in which we celebrate the Eucharist and the sacraments in the Catholic Church, older than any tradition we love to hold up to call ourselves traditional Catholics. Martyrdom is the oldest tradition, second only to the seven sacraments. And in terms of the Eucharist, the Eucharist beat it by a day, unless you count the death of John the Baptist, in which martyrdom is older than the Eucharist. He died before Jesus gave us the Eucharist. And when we look at those, even down to today, who suffer for the faith, who suffer persecution for the faith, we see the heroism of their witness and their observance. There is where we see true traditional Catholics. Here in the United States, we don't see much of that. Here in the United States, we have people who call themselves traditional Catholics who haven't darkened the door of a church since Vatican II because a communion rail was taken out of a church. They don't like the architecture of a church. They don't like the mass being in a language that they understand. They don't like the music. They don't like the priest, forgetting that there are plenty of other priests out there. Martyrs would not give up the faith to save their own lives. But these Catholics gave up the faith and the sacraments over communion rail, over mass being in a language that people could actually understand and participate. And I'm not saying that traditional Latin mass is a bad thing. It's one of many, many ways in which we celebrate the Eucharist in the Catholic Church. It's unfortunate that many, I'm hoping not all, but many who are proponents of the Latin Mass, who prefer the Latin Mass, it's unfortunate that many of them don't realize that there are, at least to my count, 28 ways of celebrating the Mass. They don't know that, nor are they teaching their children that. They're teaching them two ways of celebrating Mass, Latin Mass and not Latin Mass. 
and many of the liberals are the same way. I'm not here knocking the conservatives and the traditionalists. Many of the liberal, progressive, post-Vatican II, post-60s Catholics are the same way. Those who think Vatican II was a whitewash and anything smacking of tradition has to be done away with also see only two ways to celebrate Mass. Latin Mass and not Latin Mass. They don't even know themselves of the multiplicity, the Catholicity of the manner in which we celebrate the Eucharist and worship God. And perhaps that's the essence of the division that we see in the church. However strongly it happens to be, I don't know. I, 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 it's there, but I'm not so sure it's as strong as some people would like to think it is. But when the division is done over such things as the Eucharist, and then we call it traditional as opposed to non-traditional, I like to remind them of what is the example of such saints as Cyprian and Cornelius that we celebrate today, St. Peter, Paul, all of the apostles, Jesus himself, many, many other saints throughout history, and even here in the United States, just south of our border, as recently as the 1920s, when there was a persecution of the Catholic Church that yielded martyrs such as Miguel Pro, St. Michael Pro, Jesuit, and others whose stories are being told even to today, who suffered persecution, imprisonment, and even execution because of their faith. They engaged in the true tradition of the Church, the oldest tradition of the Church, following Christ's command literally to take up one's cross, and follow in his footsteps. And it is at the time of greatest persecution that we saw the church at its greatest zeal. Yes, there were divisions in the early church. I mean, we celebrated uh, uh, about a month ago in the feasts of Saints Hippolytus and Pontian. Pope Pontian and wanted-to-be Pope Hippolytus, who himself was an anti-pope for a time, but eventually came back to the fold, and died a martyr's death, and we honor him as a saint, along with the Pope that he was a rival to. There were divisions in the early church, especially over matters of teaching and theology, and the coming to the early codification of what the church teaches so it can be taught more universally. There were debates, that, even in the councils. There were divisions, even among the apostles. One thing Jesus perhaps did realize is that in appointing 12 apostles, you would perhaps have 12 different approaches to preaching and worship. Division is not necessarily a bad thing. Nowadays, politically, we hear people say, diversity, diversity is our strength until you impose diversity on them. Then they aren't so sure. And the kind of diversity that is our strengths is the diversity we've seen in the church. And I don't talk cultural diversity. Usually when we talk diversity, we're talking cultural and ideological and um, sometimes even moral diversity. But the diversity in the church started with the 12 apostles. We had 12 personalities. 13 once you added St. Peter. 14 once you added St. Barnabas. And when they gathered for the Council of Jerusalem to discuss what they're going to do with the traditions of Judaism in light of Gentiles coming into the church, you can imagine the knockdown, drag-out arguments that took place because they were dealing with traditions that were older than the traditions people refer to nowadays when they call themselves a traditional Catholic. 
But the church survived because of the diversity that brought them together as one, not as differences, but as one, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to move our church forward. Vatican II was an example of those. And for anyone to say otherwise, well, I said it before, I'll say it again. I don't have the authority to make that determination, and I don't think those who make those declarations have the authority either. But what always has united the church is the experience of persecution and suffering. That and an act of martyrdom, giving one's life for the faith, giving, as Lincoln might put it, that last full measure of devotion for the faith, is the oldest tradition of our church. So, when a person says, I'm a traditional Catholic, one might ask, what are you willing to give up for this faith? How much are you willing to give up for the faith? Or are you willing to give up the faith because of a change and then simply call that change heretical? By the power vested in you, by the authority of whoever you thought gave it to you, obviously separate from the church, do we focus on the inspiration behind these changes, or we just simply, we've never done it that way before, we don't like it, it's always been this way, and therefore we make declarations that somehow the church is coming to an end, or we perpetuate sentiments toward others that feed into the divisions of the church that we experience now. But when you call yourself a traditional Catholic, are you even willing to give something up for the faith? Or are you among those who gave up the faith for a communion rail and simply justified it by saying, well, everyone else is a heretic except me and people who agree with me? Let's look at the examples of the martyrs, of Cyprian and Cornelius. Let's not call ourselves true traditional Catholics unless we either have or realistically think we have the capacity to give up what they gave up for the sake of the faith. And they gave that last full measure of devotion. They gave their lives. They truly followed Christ when he says, you must take up your cross and follow me. And they did that literally. Let us cherish the tradition that is the Eucharist at the heart of every liturgical tradition of the church. Let us cherish the tradition that is the sacraments, that is at the heart of every rite of worship in the church. And let us ask ourselves, just how devout are we as Catholics? We're in a nation, at least in the United States, that thankfully has freedom of religion. But how might we fare if we suddenly found ourselves in the kind of persecution that claimed the lives of the apostles, of Christ, of the early popes, and countless unnamed early Christians. See how we might fare there, and that might give us an idea of just how traditional we really are. Because when we do cling to the real tradition, suffering for the faith and being willing to give things up for it, and clinging to the traditions that are our sacraments, regardless of the trappings and trimmings of a liturgical rite, 
there is where we find ourselves true traditional Catholics, which is why when a person tells me I am a traditional Catholic, I ask, is there any other kind? When the Eucharist, not the right, the Eucharist is at the heart. We may like the Latin Mass, all power to us, but is our attitude one of uppityness toward those who don't celebrate the traditional Mass in Latin? If we're Novus Ordo Catholics, do we have a sense of uppityness toward those who are a little more conservative and, for lack of a better term, traditional? Do we look with contempt, born out of ignorance and confusion, to the other rites of the Catholic Church when they come together to worship in the Coptic rite, the Maronite rite, the Byzantine rite, the Ambrosian rite, the Dominican rite, the many, many different ways that have grown from our church's history in which we celebrate the Eucharist and the other sacraments. And let's stop calling ourselves traditional Catholics. There is no other kind of Catholic when our focus is in the right place. Let's just call ourselves Catholics. And then perhaps we might be the example of unity that we need to be as a church that would serve as a good example of unity for our divided nation at this time. And our example of unity may spill out to a greater sense of unity in our nation, even despite our political differences and our cultural differences and our social differences. But rather bemoan the fact that we prefer Pope Benedict to Pope Francis. Let's rejoice in the fact that we do have a papacy that functions and is present. We do have a means of selecting the next Holy Father when the current Holy Father either passes away or retires and steps down. And putting a little more faith in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we could appreciate the multiplicity of traditions in our traditional Catholic Church and focus more on our unity as a faith, as an example to bring unity to our local communities to our nation, and hopefully a sign of unity throughout the world. So those are my thoughts. I hope they make sense. Thank you for joining me, and with any luck, I will talk to you again soon.